Okay. We have 44 minutes. Let's do this thing. We're good. We can make this shit up as we go along. This is our normal modus operandi. Mm-hmm. Modus operandus? Yes. No, modus operandi. Is it? Yeah. Is it, wouldn't, wouldn't that be plural? Sure. I like, thought the I was plural, yeah. Yeah. We, we have a single modus operandus? I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've never actually studied Latin. I'm just making this up. And Knowing as you, you usual, probably come closer to studying Latin than any of us have. Probably. I do have a Latin. I have a Latin textbook somewhere. I, I bought Just it. Cause yeah, I like old nice. textbooks. They're cool. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to start the podcast with my my now weekly description of my totally batshit uh, audio setup. <laughs> uh, so right, th- so this week us. I am using Skype on my phone, and oh. that's running into the mixer. And then I have my laptop that's recording. So that's all good. Um, this week my mic stand is being held up towards my face with a space heater that i found sitting next to this uh, chair that i'm sitting in so it's like jammed into a space heater and the headphones i'm using are from the the cottage next to the one that i'm at has like a shed full of uh costumes for kids to dress up in and when i was in there earlier with my daughter i spotted a pair of headphones in the dress-up bin and so i'm using the (laughs) headphones from the dress-up bin because i left mine at home Oh so my God. they only have one like ear cup. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. on my right side, I'm listening to my colleagues through a piece of plastic. And then, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uncomfortable, but it'll do. This is going to be like the most kludged episode of this uh, podcast. Oh, it's, I'm recording yeah. with a headset and also a portable recorder. We'll see which one makes better noise. <laughs> yeah, we're doing well. We're doing well, boys and girls. It's okay. We're we're learning. Yeah. That's the important thing. The weird thing is that we're getting less and less certain about how we do this the more podcasting we do. <laughs> I think for my problem is I just keep forgetting things. If I had all of my equipment here, it would be perfect, but I don't. And instead you're forced to improvise. Exactly. Instead I'm forced to design my way out of my predicament. <laughs> Good oh. nice segue. <laughs> hey. All right, so for the people listening, welcome to How Do You Engineer, a podcast which is struggling valiantly to remain bi-weekly and may eventually become <laughs> weekly again. One day. Although One we, day. we do have all three hosts back, so that's exciting. Uh, yeah. It's very exciting. We're, we're back to square one. We're back to a minimum acceptable product. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, how about, let, let's, let, Pete, why don't you give us a little like story? Let's have Pete's story time. Tell us about when you made up your thing about design on, I assume, on the spot to impress clients. Oh, yeah. Cool. I can do that. Um, by the way, if, <laughs> if uh, given my earlier brief discussion about my audio setup, if I disappear off Skype, um, I guess let me know. <laughs> I'm stealing <laughs> Wi-Fi from the neighbors. So at any point, nice. I might just lose my connectivity. Anyway, design. Right. Here we go. Um, so essentially I was put on the spot to a certain extent recently by a tour that we were giving for, um, a colleague of ours, colleague slash customer now, um, who was interested in creating a a different approach to design for undergraduate students. 
Um, in this case, it's a little bit more open-ended and ad hoc and has a different kind of emphasis than typical design where students aren't necessarily following a procedure. They're bringing design into the everyday learning environment where they have to essentially apply the, the skills that they learn day to day throughout their undergraduate career to design context and to design challenges and things like that. And as we were discussing some of the products that our company makes, uh, I got sort of off on a tangent that I'd uh, originally come up with a few years ago that was essentially my take on design, which is that uh, fundamentally I see design as being a sequence of decisions. Uh, I mean, you can probably say that most things are a sequence of decisions, but <laughs> design in particular is basically just a sequence of decisions that may or may not be informed. So as you create a design, you think about uh, the different steps you need to take to solve the problem you have. And those particular steps, whether they be in the context of engineering, mechanical or electrical or software or chemical or whatever else you're working with, the decisions you make in terms of how you're going to implement your solution are essentially what design is. It's that sequence of, do I use this motor or do I use that motor? Do I use this circuit or that circuit and these sensors or those sensors? Because if you go to, to purchase parts or to look at mechanical designs, uh, you basically are trying to decide, okay, am I gonna make it big and heavy or light? And uh, am I gonna make it flexible? Do I wanna use brushless motors or brush DC motors? Do I wanna use stepper motors? Do I want to use an encoder or a potentiometer or maybe some other way like an accelerometer of measuring a particular phenomenon? So basically, the more you design and the more you become an engineer who has experience, the better you are at making those decisions because you've seen them before, you've made the wrong ones a number of times, and so <laughs> they almost become second nature. You don't really think about it because you just know how to bring components together into something that will work because you've been there and you've made those decisions. And mm -hmm. so what we do as uh, teachers in design is give students a monicum of that intuition, a little bit of experience without them actually having to make those mistakes. So when they're faced with those decisions, they're more informed. They can make better decisions because they at least have a context for what they're doing or a little bit more information about what the consequences are of making different decisions. Hmm. Ta-da. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You made that up on the spot? I made it up about two years ago at a cottage, ironically. Um, remember how we went on a, a, a retreat, the three of us, out into the, the wilderness? Yep. Um, yes, we did. Yeah, so one of the, I think, probably drunk, but possibly caffeinated conversations we had that weekend, um, I brought up this whole thing about how I see design. And so I just kind of pulled it out of my, uh, <laughs> let's say, toolbox when this conversation <laughs> came up recently. Nice. Uh, that's really cool. I, like, I'm excited about this conversation because we, we three have very different experiences with design and have done, like, we've been doing design each of us for years now, but in completely different fields, which is kind of exciting to see how well this applies in different um, different uses of the term, quote unquote, design, because it's it's a pretty broad uh, word. It can be used in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And also it, t it does vary. I probably from from field to field, like to me, even just when I was describing um, my concept for how design comes together just now. I had to stop myself from saying, 
well, you know, when you design, you've got some mechanical bits and some electrical bits and some software bits because that <laughs> yeah, isn't the case yeah. if you design biological um, bioreactors or um, all sorts of other things. You could create an entire design that's just software. So it, <laughs> I'm a little bit slanted towards mechatronics because that's what we do. But mm. um, I think that fundamentally the principles are the same, whether it's you're designing large-scale architecture or for software or a bridge. Yeah. Or if you're doing like graphic design or interface design. Yeah. I mean, Simon and I have now done some experience with learning experience design, which is a mm -hmm. whole other can of interesting things. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about having engineering skills that make you a better designer of like a better engineering designer. But if you look at design in a much wider scale, like the, your description applies just as well to like, I don't know, interior design. You go and you look at a room and you say, I am, what's my first decision? Okay, I'm going to pick this first item, like a couch or pick a color for the walls. That's my first decision. And then that informs all the decisions down the road. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And the more that you do it, the better you get acquainted with things like maybe we shouldn't wrap the walls in pleather. That maybe <laughs> isn't the best looking decision. Sounds great to me. I see. That's the greatest thing. It, 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 it's actually a good way, a good metaphor that a lot, it might be easier for people to wrap their head around in terms of design is like space design or like user experience design, but in a more general sense of like, how do you design a thing that people use every day? Um, and what, what happens when that, when those decisions are bad, like a piece of really bad design that you've used, it's really easy to pull those things out and, and say, okay, this was bad because of this. And why would they make that kind of design decision? And then like, how could you avoid making those kinds of pitfalls in the future? But like what you're saying is as educators, we want to be able to give people that experience without having to have those bad designs to start with. But you're right. That is absolutely a, a key element of it. When, when you and I were taking experience design uh, recently, that was the way that that particular course was taught. The professor essentially said, here's a bunch of designs what do you think is good and what do you think isn't good? And that was essentially the, the core learning experience that we took out of that to be able to try to understand how good experiences are designed for students. It was, what do you think is good and what experiences have you had that weren't great? Uh, what is it about the good experiences that made them great? And from that, you start kind of moving towards an understanding of what are the key elements that you should be focused on. Mm hmm Critiquing existing designs can be a, a great way to learn that kind of sense of what's a good idea and what's a bad idea in general. But there's also something like a completely different aspect where the like engineering education comes in a lot in giving you the tools to make those decisions with more information ahead of time. So you don't need to have a physical design. You don't need to say to build a prototype of something to say, okay, no, it's not going to work if I don't have this component. I can't drive a motor off of the output from this microprocessor because microprocessors don't have that much power. But it's that's something you wouldn't want to have to try and fail at in order to know. So that's where like the theory behind design comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Abby, you do a lot of um, interface design. How do you go about creating something because a lot of the decisions I think that you're making are very intuitive. Um, 
I think so. I think for me, I think I do a lot of trying and failing and seeing what works. Um, use, like making myself kind of a tester in the process of, you know, in my mind, something seems like it would be a great idea. And I think students would react to this in this way. And then I try it out and I go, I don't know if that makes sense. And, you know, I've shown Simon things I've done and been like, does this, the, the way these like even buttons are laid out, is that intuitive to someone who's just picking this up for the first time? Um, and just trying a lot of stuff. Um, so it's a pretty iterative process, I guess. Yeah. It's and interesting you, that you, you hit say, on, sorry, go ahead, Simon. Uh, I was just saying you hit on something, something that I found interesting, which is the idea of using the ability to use yourself as a, uh, as a metric for whether you've made the right decisions in design. And, uh, sometimes that can be easy, but sometimes it can be really, really hard to like step back enough to be able to look at something and say, did I make the right design decision here? Um, and with physical design, it's much sometimes easier because you can say, here are the requirements it needs to fulfill. And you make a decision, try a prototype, it'll either succeed or fail to meet those requirements. Whereas with things where you're, it's user-driven, um, it's a lot harder to say, here's a metric that we're going to use to measure whether or not your design was successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've got to either find people to... to like tested on, which I think is a, actually a big part of what you're doing. Um, and, or you have to be able to sort of separate yourself from the design enough to be critical, uh, actually critical of your own work, which is surprisingly difficult. It's sometimes of, very tough. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times also it comes down to the simplest ways of evaluating something, uh, whether it's uh, the one that I like to go to when I can't figure out if I like something or not, or what the best way to go is just like a very simple decision matrix whether it's something that you have in your head that you're kind of thinking about or something you actually write out. Uh, just because it's, it's in my experience with uh, design, especially when I was an undergrad, if you do a decision matrix, but you're sort of forced to do at that level, you already going into it pretty much know which design you think is the best. But what it does is it lets you actually figure out why you think it's the best. So if you have that mm. intuition that's sort of saying, this I think is the best way to go, it helps you to actually understand why that is the in, the intuitive idea that you have as to what the best decision is. Because as you fill out the matrix, you're naturally going to skew your evaluation of the particular numbers that you've apl- applied to the different categories and even the most important categories and uh, to the design you think is most appropriate. It's unusual, I think, at least in my experience, that you would go into uh, creating a decision matrix for a number of different uh, ideas that you have and come out of it being like, huh, I had no idea that was the best idea. Like generally you're going to be like, I think this is probably the way I'm going to go. And then as you fill it out, you're like, yeah, well, this it looks like this is the best, but it's the best because the most important things fundamentally are weight and usability. So this is the best in terms of weight and usability. It's not total garbage in terms of my other particular um, constraints and criteria that I'm evaluating. So sure, we'll go with this one. But it's sort of this, that fundamental walking through the process, whether it's in your in your head or on paper that lets you uh, kind of fundamentally figure out what it is. And it's the same with, like you were saying, uh, doing your own sort of self-testing and self-analysis when you're looking at something you've made to see if you think it's work. It's sort of like, eh, this is fine, but it's really not doing it for me in this particular area that it turns out is actually important to me. Yeah. We've also kind of looked at, uh, we've implicitly defined design sort of as two separate processes. 
there's one one's process where you're defining a high level here's the kind of solution that we're going to have and here are the decisions we're going to have to make and then a lower level of here's we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty picking how each individual part of the solution is going to work and so one of them is fairly linear and one of them is more iterative I, you, you start looking at a problem you're going to design a solution to it you may iterate through multiple high-level solutions, but once you knuckle down and actually put them together, it's a fairly linear series. You're not going back and making the same decision over and over and over again. You make the decision once, move on, make a bunch of other decisions, and then come back and look at the overall result. Um, I'm not sure if that's if those are two distinct processes or if they are all part of a larger process. That's it, interesting because that also applies to the decisions I was talking about because what that sort of gets towards is is not just the decisions you make when you're creating something, but it's the decisions you make after you've created it as to whether or not it is actually satisfactory. So like you, you mm-hmm. like you said, you go down the process of, of doing a bunch of steps and a bunch of decisions and processes and you get to the end and then it's an ultimate decision of does this fit the bill or did I screw it up? And if you... If, it, if you decide that, you know what, this isn't what I want, then you have to decide how far back you're going to go. If you go all the way back to the, the drawing board or if you go back a few steps and rethink how you've designed your software or whatnot so that you get closer to what you're looking for. But it is ultimately like, is this a checkbox or a not-so-full checkbox? <laughs> well, okay, so this is uh, something I've been curious about with with design and making those kinds of decisions because um abby you especially have been faced recently let's say with some not so great design um and had to apply the knowledge that you have to a design that somebody else has come up with and so like how how do you jump into the middle of a design that somebody else has done and say okay here are the decisions you made that were bad and here's how we could change that to make it better. Because it's, it's one thing to like take an idea from the ground up and make each of the decisions in the order in which it makes the most sense to do. But it's a different thing to sort of step into something and say, start with that question that, that Pete asked of, okay, does this meet the bill? And you say, nope, it's very bad. Here's why and here's how you fix it. Mm-hmm. That's tough. I mean... I find in situations like that, me personally, um, I like to tear things down. Um, it is hard to jump into the middle of a project. Um, You're like a toddler. Just like to tear things apart. Yeah. Burn it to the ground and start again. Uh, I mean, I won't start completely from scratch, but I typically, I'll, I'll use whatever is done in whatever formats it in, unless it's, you know, very close to some sort of completed product. Um, but if it's if it's not there in a number of ways then I'd rather just kind of using use it as a series of building blocks to start a, like start anew, if that makes mm. sense. Break That's, it apart into into modules that you can then sort of try and stitch together. Say exactly. this, this part worked, this part worked, we're going to set those aside and then figure out where we can slot them into a new design. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think if you generally start with an existing design that isn't working, trying to mold it and shape it into something that does work is not typically going to end up being exactly what you want in the end like if you think about um you know an example of this that's relevant then you can see how it would work 
I can't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that. Um, you know, well, like, it, it, I don't know. I feel like Abby's right. If you if you break something apart and use the parts that work and discard the parts that don't work and then rebuild it, you're going to get you a lot further ahead than if you just take the existing final product and try to kind of squash it or change little bits of it until it is better. Well, I mean, so it, to go back to your original design metaphor, if you start with something that already exists, you are limited in the decisions that you can make by the work that's already been done. And so if you try to mold something, every decision that every design decision you're going to try and make becomes two decisions. It's a, am I going to undo the decision that was made before and then B, what is the correct answer? So you, you, like you're doubling your work there and you have this sort of inertia of here's the design decision that was made in the past and is it worth the effort to try and fix it? Um, I mean, there's a lot of really bad designs out in the world right now that exist purely because that's just how it's done already. And it's never the, the, the decision has never been made to say, okay, we need to step back and, and try this again. Um, that's cool. So, like, I like that. Hmm. Well done. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's a whole different conversation to be had here about like things that we do just because that's how they've always been done. But it, it, it applies just as well to something that you just created that even though that isn't something that has a weight of tradition behind it, it's still because it's a, a fait accompli, you're always hesitant to like, okay, are we going to really redo all of this work um, when we've got something that is kind of okay? It's interesting. What occurs to me at this point is that um, I think I've talked about this before, but, I had a friend uh, in undergrad who did a research project on the stage in a software design where the sheer amount of bug fixes and hacks and patches that have been applied to a code base is so large that it is actually more efficient in terms of the, the, the end goal and end functionality of the system to just burn it to the ground and start from scratch. And so you looking, he looked basically back at a bunch of Mozilla repos, uh, I think actually fundamentally based on Firefox, and was trying to trace the amount of work that was done to fix existing flawed software designs versus if they had just stopped when they discovered that it was broken and gone back and redesigned that whole portion of the system. And there is mm -hmm. a definite point where it is faster and better if you just say, you know what, let's just burn it to the ground and start from scratch because trying to fix it and hack it and make it work is just going to end up with fundamentally broken code. It's not exactly tech debt, which is another term that we'll talk about one day, but <laughs> it is that, that idea of if you have a, a foundation that's cracked, is it really worth trying to build buttresses on your house to try to keep it up nonetheless? Uh, yes. Buttresses are awesome. You should always have them on your house. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can then you could have like statues and gargoyles and all kinds of awesome stuff. Fair enough. Okay, Grand buttresses <laughs> are great. We'll go with that. No, no, I, I get what I get what you're talking about. It's it, it is. There's a lot of inertia to any kind of design, and making a big part of design is making those kinds of tough decisions. Beyond like. I guess we could say that like, there's there's some really easy sort of either or decisions of am I going to do A or am I going to do B, um, but there's a a harder kind of decision which is am I going to do anything at all? Yeah, 
I mean, you and I, Simon, mm-hmm. were working on a project at one point where we were faced with that issue. I had designed a piece of software that was required, what I, I had originally designed for a purpose, and it turned out that the purpose changed. And you and I spent a day trying to make it work for the new application. And at the end of the day, we, after a lot of back and forth, we're just like, you know what? We have to go back to square one and rebuild mm-hmm. this entire component because we're wasting more time trying to get it to work in this particular application than it would take to just design it from scratch for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we were we were further hindered by the fact that we were designing in a space that we had a some experience, like we're experienced programmers in the language you're programming in, but not in the application we were using that that programming language for. Yeah. So we lacked one of the things that we that you mentioned earlier is that sort of intuition um, of like what's a good idea, what's not a good idea. And that only really works when what you're doing lines up sufficiently with what you've done before that you don't need to seriously think about whether your intuitive sense applies to the new decision. Because in some cases that can actually backfire. You say, okay, this is, I do this and I do this because that's how I code. That's how I make programs. And that may not apply to your new, the the space you're working in now. So like there's, there's certainly value to giving having experience with how to solve a specific kind of problem as long as you don't necessarily try to overgeneralize that experience and make bad decisions in other fields because of your uh, confidence in your intuition as to what the best solution is. Yeah, part of success is also psychological in that respect. You were talking earlier about how you can view design in an ulterior context as a sequence of failures. There's a lot of material especially in floofy marketing terms about how if you make a lot of mistakes then eventually you'll you'll succeed and everyone is happy but that's really tough psychologically and Mm -hmm. uh, the the fail early fail often mentality yeah it's nice to write that on paper but if if you fail for three years at doing something first of all it feels pretty crappy and second of all typically your company is not going to be very happy either so (laughs) and it's going to cost a bunch of money so I know Abby and I have been in the, in this boat before for sure where you I, I'm I'm increasingly getting to the point where is uh, in most cases, obviously not stressful cases, but in most cases, going down a path like you were saying where you don't have the experience to really know what the outcome is gonna be and you make a guess as to how something needs to come together and you work on it for a while and get to the point where you're like, you know what, this is this is wrong. This is totally not working. Mm-hmm. I got to mm-hmm. go back and start again. Like I know, I mean, I've both been there recently with some of the stuff we're working on where it's like, you know what, no, nah, that, that was a bad idea. We got to go no, back and do it again. But I, I actually <laughs> enjoy that now. Like I'm actually at the point now where I'm like, it's exciting because you're like, no, I found something that doesn't work, but now I have a better idea of what may work. And that, that's something that you have to look at as uh, an opportunity this is going to sound really cheesy, but as an opportunity as opposed to like a uh, a sacrifice or a, something that's a detriment. Because if you if you see that as like I'm one step closer, like I've screwed up, but now the the realm of possibilities in terms of what is actually the right answer to this problem is smaller. Like I'm getting closer. Mm-hmm. Then it's mm-hmm. a little bit easier to take. But yeah, after a while, it's it becomes frustrating. <laughs> So I'm I'm curious um, again, Abby. It, out of the three of us, people that you've done the largest leap out of what would be considered your existing area of expertise, going into mobile like mobile development. 
how like how did you make that jump and learn because now like i would say now i would consider you probably a a seasoned designer in that field um at oh, least well, thank within, you. within like within, within this particular application mm-hmm. but your education in engineering i based on like i i wouldn't assume that you have had any real background in what you're doing now how did you make that jump um slowly with great trepidation um (laughs) and uh yeah but failing failing a lot i mean at the time it didn't feel like failures i mean everything was a learning process but uh definitely looking back on some things that i did and decisions i made it's like that's that wasn't the right call but Mm. i learned from it and uh, i kind of got closer to i guess what is um what is the better solution or what i guess at the you know what Pete was talking about being closer to that end in sight, I guess, of, uh, of what I actually wanted to do. So it, it I don't know. It, it was a tough jump kind mm-hmm. of, I mean, I had background in education, so that very greatly helps, um, in my particular application, but, um, yeah, going from kind of no mobile to all mobile all the time, it was, uh, difficult. <laughs> what also may have helped too, was there was some camaraderie in that none of us really knew what we were doing. It was a, it was exactly. a completely new thing, and so we were all kind of like, "Ah, this is probably something that could work." And then six months later, we're like, "Ooh, ooh, people people aren't doing what we thought they were going to do. They're doing other stuff." And now <laughs> exactly. everything looks I mean, terrible. There was, <laughs> there was no expert um, in that field at that time, so I mean, the experts now are you know us. Yeah. But back then, <laughs> there was no one to tell us <laughs> that what we were doing was not not good choices. So, but like, so I'm, did you, would you say that you more often approached a design decision? Like we're talking about design as a series of choices. Would you say that you approached the design decisions at the beginning when you didn't really have a context for it? Did you approach them as a novel, uh, a novel problem? Or did you try to apply knowledge from elsewhere and like apply it in a new way? Like take your background as electrical engineering. Did you take your experience in designing or making decisions about electrical and apply, try to apply that knowledge? Or did you just say, nope, this is not really applicable. I'm going to treat this as a completely new problem. It's interesting that you mentioned that because it was only when we really started treating it as novel that things actually began, uh, began to happen in a way that I guess we were happy with. Um, I was really um, upon first designing for this platform that I'm working on, it was uh, very much trying to fit previous notions of what I thought things should be into this new system. Um, and I had no idea. I wasn't, I wasn't starting from square one. I thought it was a thing. I thought it was something. And I was trying to treat it as that thing it's just, mm. instead of just an entirely different thing that I've never experienced before. Um, so it was only really actually when we began to treat it as novel did did the magic start? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that, that that raises an interesting question. Um, like, how how much would you say that your education, again, before, inf- like, influenced your ability to make that jump? Like, I, I I want to say that having an engineering education is important to making these decisions, even if you can't apply the knowledge before. But I can't really like put my thumb on how, how I would make that argument. I mean, I think so. I mean, I had a lot of things going, um, 
going for me, I guess, going into this platform in terms of experience coding and with education and um, actually being a TA in a design course that helps as well. Mm. Um, so I would say so, but yeah, I don't know if I could explicitly point out exactly what thing helped me, but I think it all comes together. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like the the process we've been talking about in terms of making decisions and building on past experience and like you were talking about with uh, following a process that that's makes sense to you to follow and seeing where it leads, that's all kind of, to a certain extent, generic engineering. Like it's, it's ubiquitous across engineering. But mm-hmm. then also uh, one key advantage, um, this is probably... Uh, a little bit biased in that I have a background in systems and Simon has a background in systems, but I think that is an advantage, like understanding how components of a system generally come together and what the pieces are that you're generally looking for and Mm -hmm. how a little bit more of like a humanistic look at how people typically use things. Because generally speaking, engineering is about building things that are used by people at the moment, at least. And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I had a discussion for four hours with my dad about AI. So I have that in the back of my mind as well. But yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, <laughs> engineering is giving you a little bit more of that informed background where it may not be in the same field or it may not be exactly what you're working on, but at least you've you've experienced the, that decision-making process and that, that sort of, uh, like I said, psychological... Uh, foundation for how you make decisions and how you follow up with them and what to do when they fail and that kind of thing. Like it, it's a higher level ex- experience than the lower level. Well, I guess I should use a DC motor. Like there's, there's different, uh, they all come together in a certain way, maybe. Mm-hmm. 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 So I like we should probably wrap this up. I want to sort of ask you guys one final question because we, these kinds of conversations tend to ramble and we don't get to a point. So my point <laughs> The point I'd like you like you to answer for me would be if you had to teach somebody to design, like just in general, the, the to design, assuming there are framework of making inform as decisions as informed as possible, how would you go about creating a program or a educational process by which you taught people to be better designers in general? Feel free to think about it. I, I can edit out some silence here while you. Uh, <laughs> Like okay, well, while you guys think about it, I will I will start um, in saying that the one of the best experiences I ever had in my undergrad, which was in a program that was explicitly called Systems Design Engineering, and one of the my the two biggest experiences or most formative experiences for me in terms of design were an exercise in reverse engineering, in which we ripped apart. Uh, consumer products and looked at the ways they were designed and observed the decisions that were made that went into it in with a critical eye towards why they might make those decisions from various different points of view. So usability, cost, um, uh, aesthetics, all sorts of things from that. And the, the process of starting with something which had obviously been had a lot of time put into it and also the process of making sure not to forget things like aesthetics uh, was big for me uh, because it's something that that engineers in particular tend to overlook in a lot of cases they get caught up on very specific uh, certain requirements and that becomes all the design is to them um, 
And so the holistic mentality of looking at design as a higher level thing where a whole bunch of people would come together and make decisions was important. But also the process of actually going through a, like a capstone design project and seeing how easy it was to end up in like development hell um, mm-hmm. was big for me as well. Because it gave you an idea of this is these are the kinds of pitfalls that every design faces. Um, so both of those experiences, I think, would apply really well to both engineering design, but also graphic design, interior design, all sorts of stuff. Okay, I have mm-hmm. one. Um, mm-hmm. that okay. I just thought of right now. So it's, it's well, it, it, might, so. it might be a little uh, not entirely flushed out. Um, no, that's, a, that's part of our charm. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what I think an experience is that I would like to see, uh, I was thinking about how, to me, a lot of good design comes from having a firm investment in what you're creating and also from that experience we were talking about of intuitively knowing how something is done in that particular area or that particular type of design. So what I would do is I'd take two students in groups of two and I would put them together and find something. It doesn't have to be engineering related, but just something that each of them are passionate about. It doesn't have to be, uh, again, like something that's engineering based or something that's easily to design, but it has to be something that they have a background knowledge in, something that they're pretty experienced in so they understand how it works. And I would have them design something for that particular area. Let's say one student is really into aquariums, the other one is really into saxophone. So maybe like one of them designs a mute for a saxophone and one of them designs a type of a particular like design for an aquarium. But they do it together on the, on the project together. But one of them is kind of showing the other one like this is no, that makes no sense because when you're building a saltwater aquarium, acrylic is not going to work because maybe it gets pocked by the saltwater or like, I don't know. But they, they sort of show each mm-hmm. other the, the process that they're going through to create that design and have them think about why they're making decisions that they are making and how they're following that process. And so they're kind of showing each other how in totally different fields with totally different applications, there's a similar process that you follow. And also that you don't necessarily need that background experience to be able to create something that's successful because the having them both together, one having a background and one not, the one without the background may have interesting new ideas the other one, the other person has never thought of. And so they mm-hmm. might end up with something that as a whole is better than each of them would have designed separately because they have both experience and also a fresh perspective. Um, anyway, so that, that's that's something that I was thinking about. I like about. that. Abby, that's any nice. thoughts? Um, for me, I think a lesson or some sort of exercise in over-engineering or over-design um, mm. would be great. Um I mentioned I was a TA in an engineering design course. And that's the thing that I found a lot of students were struggling with um, was, I mean, they laid out all their requirements and constraints and their metrics. How are we going to measure this? And then they just make it so unnecessarily complicated um, <laughs> to the point where, you know, a student was pulling out all these engineering things that he, it was a first year course that he shouldn't have learned until he was like in third year and blah, blah, blah. And um, everyone was really impressed. And that's really great. Um, but why, why did you do this? Like, if you can't fundamentally answer that question, um, you know, then it's, it's probably not a good solution. Yeah. And it it does, it's something we'd be particularly, um, 
vulnerable to looking at this on a design like decision by decision basis of we'll just keep making decisions forever mm-hmm mm-hmm so I mean yeah it's uh, I think some sort of exercise and maybe yeah laying out the requirements and then just going crazy with them just to show <laughs> that it's you don't need to be have the fanciest or flashiest or anything of design for it to be a really good solution yeah. to mm-hmm. whatever problem you're solving. The easiest part of that too is that sometimes there are an underlying uh, criteria that applies universally to a lot of designs that you can use as a kind of a touchstone to make sure that designs don't go off the rails like that. The one that comes to mind being cost. A lot of mm-hmm. like most of the time cost is a restriction and some yeah. of the best designs I came up with in undergrad. Uh, I actually went to a design, an Ontario engineering design competition with a team in first year and wow. we almost won. We were, our little Lego man landed on the target and we would have won, but then he slowly slid off the target. Oh, <laughs> no. It was heartbreaking. Anyway, um, point being, uh, our big thing as a group was we highlighted three or four main criteria we were going to target, chief amongst which was typically cost. And it's very easy to find a simple and elegant design solution if you are like, okay, look, let's just focus on what we have to do to solve the problem without going overboard, like you were saying, on over over engineering something because you can. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, one of our designs, we had some poster board to present our, pro- our project and then we had a limited budget and we were supposed to build a way to keep a Lego man in the air as long as possible. And we used the poster board for our presentation as a paper airplane to launch him into the air. Cause we were like, well, we don't have to buy anything for that. We already have the paper they gave it to us. So we'll just use that. <laughs> and so like you can come up with interesting solutions just being like, well, what is the least amount of money I can spend on this thing? And I'll never forget uh, that same year in first year, our actual design project for school, like for our actual project for our, we had yearly design projects, like design courses. Um, we had a guy in our group who was a, an experienced machinist. Like he was a welder and a machinist who'd worked for years in a shop. And so he went out and he did some welding for us. He got some acrylic and Lexan and we built this huge cannon to fire the projectiles we had. And another group just took a margarine container and some elastic bands and they totally smoked us. <laughs> and I was like, huh, okay. So you can design a beautiful piece of engineering that's welded and joined and is using advanced materials. And, or you can just take a yogurt container and elastic band and like theirs cost a slight fraction of what ours cost to build. So it, it yeah, I think a, a few things like cost and the time that you're going to spend on development is universal. And if you focus oftentimes on optimizing those aspects, you can end up with something that's typically a little more successful depending on the context, probably like I'm sure Apple mm-hmm. doesn't always focus on cost, but at some point they do. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I like it. So yeah. I'm going to have to call this because someone's going to come into this room in a moment and want to have a meeting. So <laughs> I have to get out of here. Yeah. My but, right uh, ear I hurts because think... there's no padding on it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we've we've opened a can of worms here. We're going to, have to talk about this more anyway, but I think this is a good start. Cool. And uh, I'd like to hear from people who are listening. If you got any thoughts on how design works or how you could teach design, that would be cool. Um, and if you got some time and you have an Apple device, if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we are still kind of floating in relative no man's land in terms of ratings. So that would be awesome. Also, and, I'm going to try uh, to buy shirts this week or next week. So if you haven't got a chance to go to how do you engineer slash shirts and vote for the designs you like or submit designs you think we should make, then 
do that because otherwise we're going to make what we like and you'll have to either not buy it or buy it and look weird. Well, we might do that anyway, <laughs> but we're going to buy All shirts. Right. It's going to happen. <laughs> Stay Woo. tuned. Cool. All right. Talk to you guys later. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.